everybody. This is Soda, and I'm Jason McKenzie, because I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> doing what? I don't know. We used to not introduce ourselves, and then all of a sudden we started doing it again. So. Oh, we did? Oh. Oh, we don't have to. No, we can. We should. We can. They might not know who we are. Okay. And I'm Sarah Kensler. Wonderful. You got your phone voice on with I that? I did. All right. So today, we're just going to like dive right on in with talking about some art stuff. And the art stuff that we are going to currently address right now, after I get done introducing it, we're going to start talking about it, which is the subject of war. (laughs) (laughs) The subject of the art that we are going to be discussing. (laughs) Right, that I I was up right away. Right about to actually do it. You made me laugh. Okay. Um, Don't look at me. (laughs) uh, Warren Canders has resigned from the Whitney Museum board. And this comes after months and months, or I think maybe even almost a year, of controversy surrounding this. Um, I think around a year ago, Hyperallergic published that Canders is an owner of the business Safariland. Safariland is a manufacturer of tear gas, and Safariland tear gas has been used at the U.S. border. Once this came to light, there have been many protests for him to step down because people don't want their, you know, public-facing museums or art to be funded by money that supports such a detestable cause. So, just in case you haven't heard about this, which would be surprising if you follow art news, the Whitney Biennial happens this year, or happened, is happening this year, and... I think there were an original four artists who asked for their work to be removed, followed by another four grand totaling eight artists who specifically called for their work to be removed from the museum. And there was also a staff letter of staff from within the Whitney Museum that called for the removal of Candor's as well as lots of public protests in the lobby and outside of the museums that have been kind of perpetually going on throughout all of this. And so finally, uh, I believe earlier this week, at the very beginning of this week, so it'll be two weeks by the time this comes out, Warren Canders has officially stepped down. Why is it a big deal that he stepped down? So there are a few intersecting reasons why this is important. One of the reasons is that protesters and artists and just general public who has opposed um, Candor's being an active part of the Whitney board, you know, find this as a triumph. You know, the, the fruit of their labors, you know, their concerns have been heard. Finally, their effort has resulted in their desired uh, outcome, which is Candor stepping down, which, you know, is... Uh, a win for protesters and showing that, you know, being there, raising your voice, you know, being a part of a movement does, in fact, create change. They've actually influenced the Whitney, which is a huge deal. Right. Absolutely. Another big deal is that this is probably the second highest profile you know, board controversy in recent history, uh, right behind the Sacklers, which we have talked about many a time on this podcast. Um, Just in case you don't know, the Sackler family made their money uh, exploiting the opioid crisis in the 90s, um, 
their uh, big pharma company family, and they have been put on trial, found guilty for their role in perpetuating the opioid crisis, and a lot of museums are taking their names off of galleries that they've donated and refusing donations from the family, etc. So this is could be a start of a movement that we're seeing. People are calling for more attention to whom museums put on their boards, perhaps suggesting that there should be some kind of guidelines or process for screening where people's money are coming from. A vetting process. Yeah. Right. For right. donors. Yeah. Yes. So I think we've talked about there's a concern on the other side of this argument that um, <clears throat> the money and support lost when people like Candors and Sackler are essentially pushed out of the museum world. It's pretty significant. Yes, of course. In an article by Art News uh, titled, It's Just the Beginning, Art World Responds to Warren B. Kander's Resignation from the Whitney Board, he says that uh, a movement like this, uh, where people are more selective about who goes on their museum boards, may lead to museums ending up with a loss of funding. Quote, if you become ultra-pure about who you take your money from, you end up diminishing the ability of the museum to be effective in the public arena. He said, adding, Mr. S- Mr. Kanders has not done anything illegal. He didn't fire tear gas. He's in a business that makes tear gas. Should we take a position that anybody who manufactures things can be used in a way you don't like, be banned from the museum? We should sit down and discuss it. End quote. So... Originally, in thinking about this topic, you know, I am always so, like, my approach to things is artist forward, you know, museum worker forward, um, you know, anti-violence on the border, you know, I I support that 100%. But this, like, quote in this article, which I will link to in the show notes, got me, like, thinking a bit, you know, it's... It's no secret that a lot of people on art museum boards are, you know, obviously one percenters. One percenters may often be Republican because they benefit the most from current, you know, right wing agendas. And they like to be involved in nonprofit arts things because it helps them write off their taxes even more with nonprofit donations and you know they so they like to be on boards of things and it just makes me a little like worried like if we like I don't want someone whose money is funded you know came from this business that manufactured tear gas that was used at the border um oh and also bullets that were used in uh Gaza as well like I don't want that funding a place where I go to see, you know, like Basquiat's. But if we, like, if all these people get picked out of the art museum one by one, are they going to, like, turn around and be like, oh, well, I'm going to go donate all this money to, like, the NRA or, like, you know, some other, like, really right-wing cause and just be like, oh, well, they don't want me. I'm going to go where people will like my money and then all of a sudden these like right-wing things are going to get a bunch of funding. I 
<clears throat> I refuse to believe that donating to museums is the only thing keeping these people from donating to the MRA. NRA. <laughs> I know. Like I'm, they, not, I'm not saying that this is the one cause and effect. I'm sure, just... Sure, but it's... You're kind of... Um, Am I spiraling? You're spiraling a little bit. <laughs> which is fine. Which is okay. fine. I take a lot of issue with what he's saying. So... <laughs> Let's let's take this apart. So Gordon says, if you become ultra pure about who you take your money from, you end up diminishing the ability of the museum to be effective in the public arena. I would argue um, it would be great if museums could be effective in the public arena with money that wasn't involved with um, with weapons. Yeah, one hundred percent. I feel like that's I feel pretty easy, right? And totally possible. And and effective in the public arena. What does he mean? Does he not think that there are other people who would donate their money to fund the museum? Mm-hmm. Uh, case in point, donation based memberships. We have those in the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. It's totally a thing. Um, Mr. Kanders has not done anything illegal. I don't think that that's relevant. He didn't fire the tear gas. Like also. Low bar, right? If if, that's, <laughs> if that is the bar that we're like, if he would have to fire the tear gas for him to be out, like, let's raise our standards just a tad. So anyway, saying as a defense of Mr. Kanders that he didn't fire the tear gas, low standards, yep. I feel, yep. for this particular argument. Yes. He's in a business that makes tear gas, statement of fact, Sure. Yes. Should we take a position that anybody who manufactures things that can be used in a way you don't like be banned from the museum? Um, Mr. Gordon, I would argue that nobody enjoys tear gas. It's not like this is a preference. (laughs) This is not a personal preference of us. Tear gas is, is terrible. I've never experienced it because I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. And very opposed to tear gas. And very opposed you to tear gas. don't enjoy it. I, I wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah. I don't think you would either. I, sure. Again, I feel like Gordon's standards for where we should get our money <laughs> are extremely low. Sure. Sure, sure, um, sure. We should, okay, uh, we should sit down and discuss it. I would love to discuss it. I promote open discussion about things. Yeah. Hey, Mr. Gordon. <laughs> Would you like to come to my apartment and discuss this? Please let me know. You can email us at sodapodcast at gmail.com. I mean, apparently you're only in Milwaukee. I would road trip to Milwaukee to watch you have a discussion with this guy. That would be something that I would pay money to do. I would love it. I would bring snacks. I could bring Pam's pepper jam. Made right here in Minnesota. (laughs) Um, Anyway, we're getting off topic. So I I think there's there's a couple of larger... Points of anxiety that that Gordon is referring to, right? There's this there's this anxiety, this nervousness about, well, if we get rid of the people who make the war machines, then the museums will have no money. I think is what he's saying, mm-hmm. and that's why we should we should look over, we should we should overlook all these things because the people who give the money to make the war machines aren't firing the war machines themselves, which like again, low standards sure. here. But I, I just refuse to believe that museums will go completely and totally bankrupt no. without these funds. No, 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 no. Of and, not. and I, you know, far be it from me to predict the future accurately. I cannot do that. But museums have a special place in, in our culture. Mm-hmm. They are having more of a special place in our culture. We talk all the time about how museums are making a concerted effort to be more inclusive more open, more community-centric. Museums are making the move. Art institutions are making the move 
to become more of a cultural norm and less of a cultural privilege. Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't think that it's worth taking money from someone who, although he didn't fire the tear gas, sorry, I can't, I can't get away from that. I can't. <laughs> right. And like, although the Sacklers didn't take opioids and shove them into people's hands and say, right. take this. Right. You know, they are still legally in court, you know, found guilty. Yeah. The other thing is too, I would like to point out both with Sackler and with Candor, the things that they produce affect a very specific part of the population. Mm-hmm. The opioid crisis affects a a lower social hierarchy mm-hmm. portion of the American population. It perpetuated a systemic financial hierarchy that was already in place and just made those gaps between financial levels, between poverty and middle class, even larger. Mm-hmm. And it, it also perpetuates... Um, a cultural hierarchy where there are people who think themselves above it all. Mm-hmm. And our museum shouldn't be a part of that. Art unites everyone. Art is to unite. Um, I do like what the artist Andrea Fraser said, quote, they, referring to museums, need to ensure that they have language requiring that board members' activities are consistent with and should not undermine the organization's mission and values. And they need to ensure that they have mechanisms to remove board members who fail to meet that standard. Then they need to have a serious discussion about what those mission and values are. And I think that this is a great starting point, just, you know, boards uh, getting together to and museums just discussing specifically instead of, you know, like kind of letting in anybody who takes an interest in the museum and also has, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars to provide, you know, just like having it be consistent with your mission. That doesn't mean turning people away um, blindly, you know, if it they're not outwardly like political or outwardly super liberal, of course not. It, it just, you know, I think that's a good, a good integrity move is just to make sure that your members are congruous with your mission. I agree. The other thing I was thinking too in regards to that was that I can see how some folks might say, well, then museums will start having, having to create morals for every single possible situation in order to make sure that they don't take funds from the wrong person. Um, what if a museum doesn't believe in, I don't know, polyester and one of their board members like is a manufacturer of polyester. Like I can kind of see that, that argument cropping up somewhere. Right. Thou shall not wear mixed fabrics. Thou shall not wear mixed fabrics. It's like the 11th commandment. All of a sudden it's religion. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, but I would just like to point out, in fact, that that could all be solved by just stating we're not going to take money from people whose companies make things that kill or hurt other people. It's pretty easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Awesome. We solved it. I do not have a company that makes things that hurts or kills people. I don't have $100,000 to give you, but, no. but what I can give you an insight and opinion 
and, you know, fresh millennial views, which you undoubtedly need on your board, museums everywhere. Uh, so I volunteer as tribute. Yeah. That's, that's true. It also makes space for people who are not elderly white men to be on boards. Indeed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the board makeup in, like, San Francisco and the Silicon Valley is, like... Ooh, that's a good question. Compared to places like New York and, like, yeah, East Coast with, like, a lot of old money versus, like, the Silicon Valley. Yeah. That's a fun topic for another day. Ooh. I did that on purpose in case you did were you? wondering. Did you? It was very Midwestern. I know. It was a thing that I was just trying out. Oh, Like your phone voice. <laughs> like my phone voice. Yes. All right, we're now going to do the whole rest of the podcast, and I'm going to do it like this. And I'm going to do it like this. Okay, we'll see you at the next segment, don't you know? All right, here we go. Now, I would like to move us on to the topic of neurodiversity in art museums. What is neurodiversity? You may be wondering, because this is not a, a subject that I think has, you know, breached the public as much as others. And Mm -hmm. so let's talk about that for just a hot sec. Let's do it. So this is a definition by Nick Walker, who is an autistic editor and educator. And so Nick says, neurodiversity, what it means. Quote, neurodiversity is the diversity of human brains and minds. The infinite variation in neurocognitive functionings within our species. Neurodiversity is a biological fact. It is not a perspective, an approach, a belief, a political position, or a paradigm. We have talked a lot on this podcast about making museums and organizations, you know, uh, open and accessible and comfortable for the public and many communities. We've talked about free or low-cost admissions at many places in the cities in other cities, how they're doing it. We've, we've talked about community engagement. We've talked about public programming. We've talked about ways in which museums try to break down their own cultural walls because most of them were built in the early 20th century and have a certain pompous feel about them. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that in this, you know, awakening that a lot of museums and organizations are happening to be more inclusive, neurodiversity is just kind of beginning its conversation in this context, which is good, but let's do more of that, I would say. Mm -hmm. So why is it important to consider uh, neurodiversity within a museum? Some of my ideas include um, that museums are sharers of culture. They should be publicly accessible. They're carriers of history and they're stable spaces. And that should include being welcoming to all members of the community. Everybody should feel welcome and considered. I remember in training when I was about to work at a museum, you know, we were looking at a slideshow of typical visitors to the museum. There's like tourists and then there's, you know, like whatever, whatever. One of them was regulars. And these are people who are from the community or just kind of relatively local that like to use the museum as like 
uh, a place to unwind, recuperate, have a stable environment, you know, just a breath away from busy life. Visit art that feeds their soul. And that's just, you know, something I think that we, we don't think about very often is making a comfortable space, not just an interesting one, not just one that you can access, but also a space that is pleasant to be in for all people. Another great thing that uh, museums taking into account neurodiversity does is set an example for other organizations to break neurotypical-only considerations. And many people benefit um, from sensory-forward experiences, particularly in kids. Um, If you have a program that is uh, able to be oriented towards neurodiverse kids, technically, uh, or usually sensory forward, um, all kids benefit from hands-on learning. Museums also benefit from the act of this inclusion to be able to be more welcoming to the neurodiverse community. They will be able to report more visitors and also, you know, be home, be welcoming to a wider breadth of visitors. This also could result in just more funding for these kinds of reports and more funding um, means more programs, more resources for more diverse communities or the ability to expand on programs already in place or to create new ones. It also enriches the experience of the objects within, within the museum. It helps everyone to think and see them in a new way. And I know that this may seem a little vague right now, but we do have some examples of, of what considering the neurodiverse community in a museum looks like, one of which comes from our very own home institution of MIA. A couple of years ago, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts took on an initiative, actually one of their employees took on an initiative. I would like to give her a shout out. Her name's Amanda Lesnikowski. She is the person who heads up the Art Adventure Program, which just very briefly connects uh, schools within Minnesota with specific works of art in Mia's collection, gets them, gets the kids interested in those specific works in the classroom, and then brings them to the museum to tour around and see the works in person. So it's a, it's a very uh, global ap- approach to the art in the permanent collection of Mia. Amanda created what are called social narratives. Um, these were... I think largely aimed at children with autism, but could really be used for any children with with any type of neurodiversity who uh, particularly need some preparation in a different way before going to a space like Mia. If you've never been, Mia is very big. Uh, When you walk in, it can be very intimidating. There's, There's lots of high ceilings. There's lots of big art pieces. It can be very loud. And so these narratives are a step-by-step of what to expect. And especially for a little kid, that can be very calming. Um, it sets the, it sets a really positive tone for their visit and then allows them to, to relax once they're there. Hope, I think was the, is the hope. Um, so Mia has those social narratives available for download on their website i am in them see if you can find me she looks really good so i was very pretty in them right right um also just using me as an example further when you go to their visit section 
Um, you can find the accessibility and inclusion subdivision. And, you know, it, in, it includes a lot of different uh, resources they have. The social narratives are there. Um, also, it does address, like, the gallery lighting, saying that the lighting in the photographs, manuscripts, prints, and drawings galleries is dim to, prog- to protect the art. Uh, perhaps if a dimmer lighting environment is better for you and your guests, they can, you know, are able to point you towards that. Uh, agreed. And on the opposite side of that, I think sometimes it's important to to explain those particular decisions um, because people with low vision have a hard time in those particular galleries seeing mm. those works. So it's it's important to be um, open and communicative with your public as well. And, and really, they've done a good job here. Yeah, absolutely. And I found a lovely video by Jackie Spanauer, who was a fellow of the Virginia Association of Museums. And her fellowship was based in research in how to create uh, neurodiversity environments in museums and also how to do it at little to no cost. So I will link to this in the show notes because it's just really helpful to know. She addresses things like comfortable seating options, you know, spaces to unwind and, you know, kind of decompress as well as the lighting situation, sensory uh, experiences for kids, things like that. So definitely check that out if you want just a really quick little video on some good ways to create a neurodiverse environment. Do we have time to talk about how this might impact museum employment rather than museum visitors? Absolutely. Um, So I was just kind of thinking, and I don't know how you feel about that, but I would really love for you to tell me. I I actually don't see a lot of visible neurodiversity in museum employees. Mm -hmm. Would you you at least agree, maybe go with that assumption or that assertion? Sure. In museums that I have worked in, I have not seen a whole bunch of neurodiversity in the employees. And I would also say, from my studies in art history, there's not a lot of neurodiversity in approaches to studying art. Can also agree. And so I I feel like there's a missed opportunity here that could grow into literally a whole new approach of looking at and studying and understanding art through a neurodiverse audience and neurodiverse scholarship. Wow. Yeah. Look at you go with your brain. It's right here in my head. I can't see it, but I believe it. (laughs) Sarah, do you have an interview for us this week? Well, funny you should ask, Jason. In fact, I do have an interview. I know that this has never happened before. I'm shocked. I knew you would be surprised. Ah. I have an interview. Uh, My interview is with Kelly O'Brien. Kelly is a professor at UW-Stout I went to a show of hers a couple of months ago at the Phipps Center in Wisconsin, and and her work is, uh, it's it's sculptural, it's painterly, it's emotional, mm. it's real super different than anything I've ever encountered, and I really enjoyed having her break down every single part of it for me. I have seen photographic evidence of this show which you went to and i am very much looking forward to the words that go behind the things that i can see (laughs) i didn't mean for that to turn out as weird as it did (laughs) it's just the time of the time of day we're at right now right well would you like to listen to it let's let us yes all right let's do that 
So today I am here with Reverend Professor Kelly O'Brien, keeper of the spandex, practicing minister slash wizard of the Church of Life, who is an installation artist living in the Twin Cities and working as a professor of contemporary sculptural practices at the University of Wisconsin at Stout. Hi, Kelly. Hey. Thanks for letting me into your studio space slash living quarters to record my pleasure on this couch <laughs> all right let's start with the basics tell me tell me a little bit about yourself I am from Buffalo New York and I got my undergraduate degree there I went in to art education because that's what everybody who likes art does and you don't know another job for it because in high school they don't teach you that and so I went in to some of the theory classes for art ed And when I got into the classroom for student teaching, that's when it was over for me. I felt like it wasn't about making my own art, and it was more about classroom management and and that sort of thing, which I have a huge respect for, and it's the reason that I got interested in art in in my own personal story, but it wasn't for me. I was really selfish, and I wanted to be a practicing artist, and I wanted to make art. So still not really understanding how to have a career as an artist. I thought about applications of how I could practice art, and I was simultaneously obsessed with B-horror films. So <laughs> Any, any B-horror film in particular? House of a Thousand Corpses. House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah. I, I haven't love, seen it. it I love the... I kind of love like the aspect of like metal wrapped in with with a horror. So like when Rob Zombie's starting to yes. direct, it's yeah. like okay, this is where it's at. Mm-hmm. And you know, like everybody loves Evil Dead, and just like thinking about like those ones that are just so ridiculous that they're funny. I, I really liked the aspect of of that. It wasn't. This, the hyper-realistic, it was, to me, a little bit more artistic. Like, can you get a laugh? Can you make something, like, so gory that it's ridiculous? And so I visited some family in California. They sort of pushed me towards it. They're in the movie industry. And um, when I went back to, after the summer, I went back to Buff State, Buffalo State College. And they told me, okay, well why don't you go to the sculpture department because they'll teach you how to make molds for prosthetics. So that's what led me to sculpture. And then I got there and I just loved it. And then I knew right away, right immediately after undergrad, that I wanted to go to grad school for it. So I went to um, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Georgia State University following that. So I was still young. I moved there when I was 23 and uh, it was a three-year program. And I just got I got there because of um, foundry work actually because Buffalo State College does um, iron casting. Mm-hmm. So I was doing foundry work, you know, after I kind of dropped the wanting to work in movies thing, and uh, it's a really hard process. You know, it was just a, a very long from your ideation to the end product, and sometimes it didn't work out, and that was not working for me. The The method in how I wanted to work was more immediate. Like I needed to see my ideas quicker. Mm-hmm. So I thought to myself, okay, what's the opposite of metal? I'm going to make soft sculpture. So then I started um, making these soft sculptures and thinking about my canvases as soft surfaces and then starting to paint on my sculpture. So things just started melding together. And then in grad school, when I moved down to Atlanta, I got there and I just started making the weirdest stuff. It was just 
there was no rhyme or reason sometimes. I was just making stuff. And I like that. I don't like thinking about, like, having a style when you're that young and when you're a student. And, you know, because of that, something did emerge, like trends in my artwork. And, you know, you can think about that as your style. But I didn't want to commit to to anything. And Mm -hmm. it felt like you would, like, box yourself in. And then some people don't experiment as much once they've claimed a style or a material that they used. So I didn't even use um, spandex until the end. I was uh, I was watching at the time. Toddlers in Tears was new. Oh, yeah, oh. it was really good. You know, mm-hmm. real good. It was really good. Real bad. <laughs> real, bad real good. Yeah, yeah. So I'm watching this stuff like to decompress at the end of the night and like keeping it really separate, like my dirty little secret. Like, oh, I'm. At school, I'm really smart and intellectual, and I really understand these deep philosophical readings, and I love them. And then I'm going home and watching, like, glitz and glam little tiny children. (laughs) It's just the worst, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like night and day sort of of battle that's happening within myself. I'm like, what kind of person am I? And I, could, I couldn't resolve that. And it, I was struggling with that. I'm like, I feel like I'm an idiot, it, like, pretending to be an intellectual, like I'm an imposter. Do you, have, do you have an imposter syndrome from watching Toddlers and Tierras while also being at grad school? Yeah. And engaging with these Everything ideas. I like is, like, you know, quote-unquote trashy. You know, it's like, I like, you know, I like um, B-horror films. And I like metal, like thrash metal. And I like... You know, I I just, so I went into my last, my third year of grad school with this kind of attitude, like, um, like AA, like, okay, I have to admit and like own this, like, I am an idiot and this is how I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to expose myself, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I... In a clear conscience. Yeah. And so I just started making this artwork about my, um, decompression tendencies and the things that might be viewed as cultural trash, like throwaway culture. And um, and then it's like, oh, my God, this is how this is how I resolve this. This is how I tie it together. If I put it in the context of of um, art and kind of examine myself through it, like putting myself under a magnifying glass and not only myself, but my peers, it, it becomes this like culturally relevant thing that I can then talk about in an academic way. So that was my resolution was just bringing it in to the other context. It's like contaminating the academic with the, you know, guilty pleasure with the, with the not decidedly not. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Although I think there, there are to your credit, I think there are some college courses that examine specific aspects of reality TV, but I understand what you're saying about I would have loved that. I never found that myself because I came from the old masters. Sure. Yes. So I'm like, no, no, can't cross. Can't can't touch. Yeah. No touching. Let's talk about your, your artist statement for a little bit. So there were some things that I, that I picked up on. One of the things that I was most interested in was the value in disregarded cultural trash. Yeah. Now, to I suppose to say that on its surface, when I think of cultural trash, I'm instantly thinking like cell phones, social media, because I'm thinking of culture contemporarily. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that in terms of practice? I don't practice? think that's, that's disregarded okay. cultural trash. That's like just distraction and these methods of tuning out 
Mm-hmm. So I think that they could be categorized as trash. And I love trash, by the way. Define so trash. It's just everything I love. Like, I just consider myself an extremely trashy person. Everything that you love is trash, and trash is everything that you love. Yeah, I'm just lowbrow. It's just lowbrow, you know? It's just, yeah. um, like, just the low-hanging fruit, like, humor in, in movies. And, you know, it's... It, maybe it's also... Um, disregarded cult- cultural trash for me is also the things that, that I kind of hold dear. It's like... I don't listen to the top 20 on the radio and, you know, I recognize them and I don't live in a hole, but I like kind of more obscure stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think, I think that the disregarded is, is the stuff that like Kardashians are regarded. Like, they're trash, but people yeah. pay attention to them mm-hmm. and are interested in them. And so uh, it's kind of different. Uh, um, so that explains a lot about your material use then. Yeah. Would the spandex you- became really important. Yeah. I don't ever use any material because I have it or it's cheap. I Every single material from the, from the nails and bolts that I put things together with is really specific. Like everything is loaded. So my work, you can really look at it in a few different layers. So I like the idea that someone can really quickly engage with it and be like, I like that, like a matter of subject or taste, right? It's, it's interesting because it's bold colors and it's poppy. Great. I like it. Yes. And then they can walk away and have something with that as superficial as it was. Mm-hmm. But if another person wants to stay with it and say, why is that brush stroke so aggressive? Why is this color mixed with this one? Why is it stretched around thick pine instead of like a traditional canvas structure bars? Mm-hmm. I can engage on that level too. And then we can get into the materials and then that leads into the concept. If you stick with my artwork, you'll like tumble or into this gateway of layer upon layer of concept and meaning and I can keep going with it in each piece. Like, you can look at a, a painting that I have that might only have, like, a single brushstroke on it. And it's just a material wrapped around something. And I can talk about it for a really long time. Because it's now packed with so much personal history. It's packed with material history. Now it's packed with cultural history. Because I'm trying to figure out my place in the world. And in my very privileged world. And, you know, what can I talk about? Mm-hmm. And, um it's all wrapped up into this little package that looks like a three-dimensional painting. That's very true. I mean, although I will say my, my first experience with the work at the Phipps art center mm-hmm. in Wisconsin, uh, about a month or two ago, that was decidedly not as colorful as your regular stuff. Mm-hmm. Because then I saw your installation at Stonewall at 50 for, mm-hmm. for Mia. Not only did you have a highly colored like neon fabric, but you also had lights. In, in both instances, at both Phipps and at Mia, you created an experience. But in comparing the two, the, the one at Phipps, the, the starkness of it, can you describe what it's like to walk in and see the installation? So when you walk into the gallery at Phipps, you see a lot of construction materials. So you're seeing a lot of bare wood, like um, plywood or chipboard, um, construction grade. 
types of pine that I would use for support and a little bit of finishing wood like um, hickory hardwood flooring, which is what I have in my house. So that's what I used because my artwork really functions like self-portraiture all the time, as abstract as it gets. And you look around and see hints of, of a soft pink which is a muted color that you see in my house a lot. I I have pink often because my favorite color is yellow and my husband's favorite color is pink. The colors of it were really personal because um, the work was about that moment that I was examining. So the overall theme in the FIPS, in interior headspace, is construction materials from my house that we completely gutted and renovated. And... That was kind of a hard time for me. I was going through some stuff um, in my personal life, and it was affecting my mental state. I was having tons of anxiety. I was down, and the artwork was a reflection of that, so that's why it's muted. That's why you see a lot of pink Mm -hmm. in there. That's Mm -hmm. my husband's favorite color, and I was thinking about him a lot during it. We were going through some struggles, which have luckily been resolved, but at the moment, it was so heavy and hard mm-hmm. and so um people would tell me just relax you gotta calm down you have to meditate so my idea of meditation was to paint when i paint i feel really good i feel relaxed it gets my it gets my blood pressure down and i feel productive and so i would sit and, and paint oil portraits or commissions for people and uh I started to think about, like, what if I use this painting as meditation? So I was using it as a process to get through some anxious times, some hard times. And I was thinking about digesting the stuff around me. And that was the construction materials and how how it was getting wrapped up in my personal life. And just trying to, like, rebuild a mental space that was a little bit more calm better designed than the mental space that I've been living in and that's where the that's where the work came from for that so it it ended up looking like some sculptures on the floor um made out of wood and canvas a lot more traditional material than I'm used to using and then it had wall pieces that looked like painting some of the painting spilled onto the uh gallery wall and um, some of it spilled from one piece to another, and it just was um, a lot more of a mundane aesthetic than I'm used to with my work, because normally it's real wild and loud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also was really interested in how you painted from particularly the wall pieces. So there were pieces that you hung on the wall that were made of, you know, two-by-fours and whatever, or had the like the bathroom tile that, like, sticky weird hexagonal bathroom tile Mm -hmm. that was just kind of hanging from it. Mm -hmm. And then you took like black paint and a paintbrush and painted from the sculpture onto the wall, back onto the sculpture, back onto the Mm -hmm. wall. I think about those marks as a representation of distraction. So that's why some of the text, there was some text painted into the show. Yes, please. Let's talk about that. There were um, statements like stay here Mm -hmm. or please. And those are uh, internal thoughts on a loop where my mind will go into an anxious thought. And, and so these dark marks dancing across, 
and pleading on some of the paintings, like, for my, my mental state, stay here. Like, I don't want my thoughts to keep jumping around. I want to be in control. That's why the, there's that plea, please. And then you see these words just stay, you know, big and bold in front of you because it's just this, um, it felt, it felt like I didn't have control sometimes of where my thoughts were going. And my content always informs my materials. Think about what needs to be said. And then I figure out what, what material will say it. What material brings that baggage? What material will bring some explanation? And then how do I put them together and manipulate them so that someone else understands how I'm thinking about it in the same way? So it's just all communication tools. So when you walk into that space and say, I can feel the construction living in an element is along with the, the mental, it's, it's good to hear that because... That's where all the decisions come from with choosing materials and choosing paint applications and composition. Mm -hmm. So what do you have coming up next? Um, Up next, I have a solo installation at Hamlin University, and that's going to be opening um, at the beginning of October. And I'll have an artist talk to go along with that. And then I have an installation at... The white page in April 2020. In Minneapolis. And that's in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. There's no rules in that space, so I think it's going to get wild. (laughs) Hamlin's giving me a lot of freedom, too. So, it's yeah, I'm very excited about both of these. And uh, if people wanted to find examples of your works online, where would they go? www.kosculpture.com Yeah. And then you can check me out on Instagram at kosculpture. Because Kelly O'Brien. That's it. Yeah. No, I was sorry, you said KO and I got distracted by thinking of like Mortal Kombat. Yeah, knockout. It, it functions in both ways. <laughs> Whatever helps you remember, I'm cool. Sure. All right. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for letting me interview you and uh, pick your brain about the hierarchies of sculpture and color theory. And it was life. lovely to talk to you. Life. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. joining us soda listeners you can find our show notes and other information about us on our website at sodapodcast.blog please email us with any feedback or to alert us of any arts events coming up at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com we're also on instagram and facebook at stateoftheartspod or search for soda podcast you can find episodes of state of the arts on itunes google play stitcher and soundcloud please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. We have a Patreon. There's a donation tab on our website. Donating to the Patreon will help us cover the costs of producing the podcast. And as always, our music is provided by The Von Tramps. I have a question for you. Give it to me. Why are you obsessed with the play button? I don't know. Lisa. Lisa, you can't record with the play button. I know. And sometimes I hit record when I'm trying to hit play. <laughs> That's terrible. Because, well, I mean, then you can undo it. Like, it's fine. But fine. Modern fine. technology allows us. Yeah. Thank goodness that modern technology <laughs> does something for us. Right.